Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Does anyone have any questions from the last class or previous classes? We can take them up now. Okay, a couple of people are just entering, so we'll just let them come in before we start this chapter. Meditation. What is meditation? Forget what it says in the book. If we just say what is, if we want to describe what meditation is, what would you say? Time of um, peace and um, getting, when you meditate, you're focusing on something, one, one focus basically. I would say what I understood about meditation before reading the book is just to be at peace, really, trying to be at peace for that time. That's a fair assumption. Um, generally, the way meditation is practiced to give you a bit of calm and peace. Anyone else? Yeah, Kevin? Uh, is it possibly um, focusing on one thought and being in the present moment, so not letting your mind wander to the future or the past um, and focusing on one single thought at a, at a particular yep. point? That is meditation, absolutely. Yeah, both. Correct. Any other? Your mic's gone a bit soft. Can you not hear me? That's better. That's better now. Put this up a bit more. Okay, is that okay? I'll speak a little bit louder. Any other um, description of meditation? Yeah, uh, Badiman. Um, where you think, where you're supposed to clear your mind, empty your mind, and have no thoughts at all. And um, to help yourself do that, you focus on one specific thing at some times or the, 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 you need to empty your mind. That's the, that's the. Very good, absolutely <laughs> right. We need to empty the mind. Now this is easier said than done, of course, to empty the mind. So did someone else put their hand up? Emptying the mind, absolutely right. And this is what today's um, class is gonna be about. How do you empty the mind? What is the state of an empty mind. See, it's easy to say, empty the mind. You try doing it. <laughs> it's like impossible <laughs> to empty the mind. So meditation. So we're gonna talk about meditation from the perspective of um, thousands of years ago, these sages, they meditated. So this is where meditation comes from. There's a purpose for it. There's a goal for it. There's a scientific process for it. This is from, we're going to discuss it from that perspective, yeah, not from any other perspective that you know, meditation is practiced 
in the world as we speak at the moment. So meditation is the path to realization. It's the path Your mic to realization. From the reduction of desires. So that's how you empty the mind. Reduction of desires. The bulk of your desires. Without this, any type of meditation has no meaning. See, um, you said empty the mind, but then what is it full of that you need to empty? Not yours specifically, yeah? We don't need to know that. <laughs> what is the mind full of that we need to empty? Desires, actions, thoughts, um, worldly things, obviously, things that you need to be doing, you want to be doing, or you should have done. <laughs> so that's what you need to empty. So it's easier said than done. Meditation is the last spiritual practice that one does. It's the last thing you do in the spiritual journey. You understand your goal in life. I need to reach that state of thoughtlessness, emptying the mind, desirelessness, emptying the mind. Everything that attaches me to this world of Maya, that is what you need to empty. Yeah. So you follow the advice given in the Gita. You develop your intellect. Reduce your vasanas, your desires. Practicing the free yogas. Now the mind is no longer agitated. Because the desires are reduced. They're no longer bothering you to fulfill them. This is emptying the mind. And when you, when you do that, you're now able to concentrate better. You're in a state of renunciation. Meaning, from last chapter, disinterested in the world. The mind, when it is filled with desires, leads to agitations. Constantly draws you to the world for their fulfillment. You can't concentrate because the mind won't let you. Once the bulk of desires are reduced, the mind is calm. You're ready for meditation. Then, through this practice of meditation, you can attain spiritual enlightenment. Merge with the one reality, Brahman. So how do you meditate? You have to go about it in a proper way. It is scientifically designed, and we're going to discuss that today. It takes time takes effort but we're so fortunate because these great mahatmas these sages they've practiced this they've done it in the past and they're now explaining and telling us how to do it they've done all the hard work we just have to follow their advice but even that is so hard so in this chapter there's not as much philosophy it's more procedures, instructions, but still it's quite enlightening of what meditation is, how to practice it properly, what is the goal of meditation, why is it the last spiritual practice, you know? So we need to know these things. It's easy to follow all the procedures, 
But where's the end goal? How do you get to that end goal? Any questions? That's the introduction to this chapter. Any questions from anyone about meditation? Does everyone understand the role of meditation and uh, why we meditate, yeah, generally? Great. So we're on chapter 14, meditation. And the first topic is technique of meditation. Uh, Meghna. Technique of meditation. The human stands out supreme amongst all living beings by virtue of possessing both gross and subtle intellect. The intellect is the faculty of thinking, reasoning, judging, deciding. It is designated as gross when this faculty operates in the terrestrial realm. As the thinking is confined to the precincts of the world and when it transcends the terrestrial world to conceive the transcendental, it is termed subtle. The subtle intellect distinguishes the eternal from the ephemeral, the real from the unreal. It is used in meditation to attain spiritual enlightenment. No other being possesses this unique faculty. At best, animals can claim to have a rudimentary gross intellect that with which a dog distinguishes its master from a stranger, food from dirt, etc. But it cannot stretch beyond that, beyond the minuscule part of the terrestrial world. No animal possesses a subtle intellect. Does everyone know, we've, we've, we keep talking about intellect, does um, everyone know what a subtle intellect is? Is, any, is anyone new to that concept, to that terminology? Just raise your hands if anybody is new to that terminology. What is the subtle intellect? So, okay, so you've all heard of it, so that's great. So it's saying that a human being is supreme amongst all living beings. We're at the top of the food chain because we have an intellect. We're able to think, reason, judge, decide. Animals only have a rudimentary gross intellect, it's saying. Just the basic. And there are two types of intellect. Gross intellect, which you use for thinking, reasoning in the terrestrial world. Your home, work, all aspects of the world. You use your gross intellect. The subtle intellect you use to conceive the transcendental. What is God? From the real to the unreal. We say this world is Maya, unreal. And what is real? Brahman is real. It allows to differentiate. For that, use the subtle intellect. So the intellect is one, it's the same. But whenever you are thinking about worldly things, you're using the gross intellect. When you're thinking beyond the world, transcendental, mystical, God, you're using the subtle intellect. Is that clear to everyone? Is there any clarifications there? So the gross and subtle intellect can be blunt or sharp. You know, we say develop the intellect. Blunt or sharp. Example, 
Einstein had a sharp, gross intellect. When it came to science, worldly matters, Einstein had a very sharp, gross intellect. You understand that, yes? Someone who can't understand that the world is made of the pairs of opposites has a blunt, gross intellect. Someone who only prays and does puja has a blunt, subtle intellect. A person who can understand the truths of life has a subtle, in, has a sharp, subtle intellect. You need a sharp, you need a subtle intellect to be interested in the subject. You won't find people with just gross intellect coming to this class. They may come try it, you'll go beyond their head because their subtle intellect isn't exposed. What exposes the subtle intellect? Any idea? Everyone has a subtle intellect. Why someone has subtle intellect available, some people don't. What covers the subtle intellect? One word. Patiban. Um, desires. Desires. More desires, the less the subtle intellect is exposed. Meaning you can't think of something beyond the world because you have so much desires going towards the world that you have no uh, idea of what God is. You're not interested in that. No subtle intellect. That's why we have to do these spiritual exercises. So it subtle intellect is exposed by reducing desires. It is a subtle intellect that we use for meditation. Is that okay? Is that clear? Between gross and subtle, the usage of subtle. It's like spanner. You use a spanner for repairing a car, taking the wheel nut off a tire. Yeah, you cannot use the same spanner to repair a watch. Spanner being one. They're both spanners. But what, the one is used for a particular purpose, the other one's used for a different purpose. Gross intellect, subtle intellect. Thank you. Uh, Megna. The mind is merely a continuous flow of thoughts. It acts like a film in a movie projector. The film consists of a series of pictures. The pictures passing through the light in a projector project the movie on the screen. The rapid movement of the pictures produce the solidarity of the projection. A similar projection is the world. Your mind is like the film and your thoughts, the pictures. The rapid movement of thoughts through the light of consciousness, the self creates the solid, substantial world. Where there is no thought flow, no mind, there is no world. Even when the mind is temporarily cut off, the world is no more. As in deep sleep, when the thoughts are completely eradicated from the mind, the world disappears. The light of consciousness alone remains and you realize your divine self. 
This is a really interesting um, paragraph. If you can understand this paragraph, and it takes a bit of thinking, um, you can learn so much about how your mind functions. It's saying the mind is a continuous flow of thoughts. Imagine a film, a projector in the olden days. You go to the cinema, they have reels of film. And the film passes the front of the lens and it projects a picture. And the picture is moving. You can't tell that there's any gaps in there. The picture is continuous, 30 frames a second. Everyone aware? And there's a little bulb that emits light that projects that picture onto the white wall. Everyone's familiar with a projector, right? So he's saying the mind is a continuous flow of thoughts like film in a projector. And the pictures on that frame, on the film, is the mind's thoughts. So flow of thoughts going through the mind. Imagine each frame is a thought. The fast movement of thoughts with the consciousness, which is the projector bulb, the self, spirit. Imagine that is the projector bulb lighting those thoughts. Project the world as we know it. So think about this. The world we see right now is thoughts like film going through your mind with a consciousness illuminating it like the bulb. Does that make sense? Can you imagine that? Constant flow of thoughts like the film going through the projector, 30 frames a second. This is how your mind functions. This is like a, a comparison to something we know. This is how the mind functions. The fast movement of thoughts with the light of consciousness projecting. And this is the world we see. That's why they say the world is based on your thoughts. So your thoughts, so the world. Everyone sees the world differently based on your thoughts, your movie. You have to really think about it to really grasp that. When thoughts are completely extinguished from the mind, the world is no more. What remains is pure consciousness. See, if the film finishes, yeah, you know when the end of the reel, the film finishes, what remains is white light. There's no more movie, no more motion on the screen. So they're saying when there's no mind, no thoughts, what remains is pure consciousness. You become one with the consciousness. We go through this process every day. Do you know when? We actually go through this process every day. When do we, when do we go through this process? Where there's no mind, no thoughts, no world. Deepa. Deep sleep. Deep sleep. Does everyone know what deep sleep is? When you go to bed, you dream. Then after the dream, you go into deep sleep where there's no dream, no thoughts, no mind, 
No world. You're one with that consciousness. No intellect. No world. The problem is we're not aware of it. That's the problem. So deep sleep is the same as reaching that state of desirelessness, thoughtlessness. Can anyone give another example when we go when a person can go through this uh, state of no world? One other example. Yeah, Gil. When someone might be in a coma or something like that. Absolutely correct. When you're in a coma, you're still alive. But there's no world for you. No thoughts, no mind, no intellect. See, we say the self, the spirit, is enveloped by the body, the mind, and the intellect, and vasanas. None of those things are there in deep sleep. Therefore, the only thing left is pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. Anesthetic. Mm. So saying anesthetic, when they give you an anesthetic, that's also the same state you've become. You don't know what's happened. You come out of the operation. It's like instant. You've, oh, you've been uh, unconscious for six hours and you think it was minutes ago. Nothing's changed. Any questions on this example? You really need to think about this example. So I'd read it a few times, this paragraph, before so that you have an idea of this, this analogy of projector and the way the mind works. Kill. I have a question. Maybe it's, I don't know if it's right or not. Uh, maybe my thought pattern is like completely wrong. So we're saying that... Um, the world is our thoughts being projected, right? Um, so at, in the evenings, when we go into deep sleep, we disconnect from all of that. But then the next morning, when we wake up, I'm still in my bed. My room still looks the same. So, so is it that basically... So what I'm saying is like, if I change my thoughts, it doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow morning I'll wake up in a palace, right? Or... So how is there, there has to be a link that continues this terrestrial world as well, right? Because this terrestrial world does exist. I mean, this table that I'm sitting at is solid, right? And if I'm, it's tangible. If I, if it's wooden today, I can't automatically project my thoughts so that it's a glass table tomorrow, right? You're absolutely right. Very good question. Absolutely. Why is it? He's asking. What Kevin is asking. Why is it when you go to deep, when you go into deep sleep and you wake up, you he wakes up back as Kevin and not Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is it that the world is still the same for him? He's still the same person. Why is it? Because you're in the same body. Same body. Okay. See, anybody else want to take a crack at it? Yeah, Dharmesh? It's just our desires that make us separate, and then desires are still the same. They haven't gone away. The core desires. Else? See, your vasanas, your thoughts, everything is dormant. It's temporary dormant. 
your intellect is still there, but it's a very small underlining intellect which keeps everything together, which keeps it keeps those thoughts and your vasanas and desires intact. So that when you wake up, you resume the person you were again. The same vasanas are manifesting. The vasanas are still there. They haven't gone anywhere. They've just been dormant in deep sleep. Like anesthetic. When you, get, when you have an anesthetic, yeah, there are no vasanas, there's no thoughts, no desires, nothing. But when you wake up from the operation, you're still that same person. Please, go. So basically what you're saying is basically there's a link between our body, our vasana and our intellect. And throughout this life, that link cannot be changed, right? You can change. Um, your vasanas can change by you actively putting effort into it. Mm -hmm. Yes. But your core vasanas that you're born with are yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Now you have a choice to exhaust them, or experience them, or eliminate them. Mm -hmm. that you have a choice that's called self-effort yeah. but the underlining vastness will always be there that you're bo that you are born with and, and, and that, that means, uh, sorry so, so so those are the vastness that we are born with so like from what i understand is like when we are born we get set aside a portion of our vastness that come with us to this world um, and we exhaust them or Hopefully, well, hopefully we exhaust them or we don't add to them. At the end of our life, we, depending on what our karmas were, we would either take on a different form or another form or the same form. And again, those vasanas would come with us, right? So, so that's that's stuck with us till the end of of this reality or this this life. Reincarnation. Yeah. Yeah. So, and which is why in the morning I don't wake up in a palace or wherever I want to. Or no. Yeah. Okay. Underlining vasanas are the same. And you're very right. In this life, you've been born with a small section of your total vasanas. A small section of your total. You have 100 million vasanas. You're born with 1 million. Or however many you've accumulated to exhaust in this lifetime. So we've gone quite deep into this. We've gone off slightly off topic which is meditation. But does everyone understand what Carol was asking? Yeah? Good. Very good question, Carol. So deep sleep is just pure consciousness. The self within us, nothing else. But unfortunately, it doesn't last. When we wake up, our vasanas are manifested again. Our mind has manifested, our intellect has manifested. Your body comes out of the bed, active, back to the world. So this is the role the mind plays. Meghna. The mind of the present generation is in a chaotic state. People's thoughts run wildly in all directions, seeking material gain and sensual pleasure, which causes the mind to be agitated. An agitated mind cannot concentrate, much less meditate. 
The strategy of meditation is to converge the mind to single thoughts and ultimately annul it. The practice of meditation therefore requires a mind free from pressures of extroverted pursuits. A mind that remains calm, composed and has turned introvert. One attains that state through, phys through sustained physical, mental and intellectual disciplines by practicing karma, bhakti and jnana yogas, the paths of action, devotion and knowledge. A mind thus turned introvert is made to chant a mantra, a word symbol representing the Supreme God, Brahman. The chant is known as Japa. You could choose a mantra that inspires you most. In Japa, the mind repeats the mantra. The intellect observes, witnesses single thought flow. During the chant, the mind may slip into other thoughts. It has the tendency to wander away. The intellect is employed to pull the mind back to the chosen line of thought. Thus, by repeated effort, the mind is kept focused on the chant. It's showing us now how to meditate. So we need a calm mind to be able to meditate. A mind that has turned introvert. Our minds are all extroverted in the world. We need to draw it and turn it inwards. Most people's minds these days are extroverted. They're all on worldly things, trying to gain wealth, sense pleasures. That is where everyone's mind is. More so now, because the world has become so more interesting, so more exciting. We can, you know, with computers, with entertainment, there's so much gadgets. It's become more extroverted and it takes a lot more effort to go introverted. See, in the olden days, there was less sense objects around. It was more easier. Now it's become more and more difficult. The world is too attractive. Mobile phone. You can go anywhere. Can you imagine with that mobile phone, you can visit any country in the world, find out what's going on in that world. You can see live Google Maps, what's going on anywhere. So what I'm saying is the world is so attractive. It's more difficult to become introverted. Mind will never be content with these things. Therefore, always agitated. How can you concentrate? How can you meditate? So the only way is reduction of desires. How? Practice of the disciplines of the three yogas. Karma yoga, bhakti yoga, dhyana yoga. And through these practices, you reduce your desires, worldly desires. Once the desires are reduced, the mind becomes introverted. Seeking the self, that's introversion. No longer attracted towards worldly things. No, less agitation. Mind is now calm. Now the mind is calm. You've done the three disciplines. You've got rid of most of your desires. Mind is calm, not agitated. Now what do you do? You sit somewhere comfortable, cross-legged, 
and you chant a mantra. Whatever that mantra, you can, it can be any mantra you want. A word symbol present, representing Brahman, for example, Om. So now you're sitting in a corner, your mind is not so agitated. You repeat the mantra in the mind. Om, Om, Om. Just repeat that mantra. The intellect observes the mind chanting this mantra. What's it observing, the intellect? Any idea? What's the role of the intellect in meditation? So you're chanting this mantra, Om, Om, Magna. To focus the mind, keep the, the mind steady so it doesn't wander. Absolutely. If the mind slips from the thought flow, Om, 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 what am I going to have dinner tonight? Om, Om. Intellect comes in. Hey, you're supposed to be chanting Om. Yeah. Om, Om. Mind goes, oh, yes, of course. Om. So this is the role of the intellect. It brings it back. Because the mind has a tendency to be distracted and go. This is the nature of the mind. The intellect has to say, come, get back into it. Pulls the mind back to the mantra. So that's why you need a strong intellect, you see? That's why we have to develop the intellect. So when, the, when we come to the last process of meditation, the intellect's powerful enough to control the mind. So with continuous practice, the mind stays focused on the thought. I want you to try this. See if you can focus the mind on one thought continuously without the mind wandering. If you could do it for two minutes, you're doing well. Try it. Not right now. Tonight, like tomorrow morning. Try it. For two minutes, can you keep your attention on one mantra without the mind wandering? And then you'll have an idea how calm your mind is, how stable your mind is. You'll have an idea. You practice it, you try it. Any questions on that? Just not in. So wouldn't it also work the other way around? If you're sitting down and, like you say, just focus your mind for two minutes and you increase it every single time, doesn't that help your concentration as well instead of just having a clear mind and doing it? If your mind is still going everywhere, but you're building your intellect by practicing this. Every day. So it so can work ways then, can it not? Yes, it can. Uh, it depends on how powerful your intellect is. If this is a battle between the mind and the intellect. The mind wants to be extroverted. The mind wants to be thinking of its desires. The intellect has to control that. So depending on how powerful the intellect is, you have to try that. And it's different for different people. But they're saying that by offloading a lot of your desires, it becomes easier because the mind isn't attracted to the world or the desires aren't popping up taking the mind away, you see? So therefore it makes it easier. Now you may have what 2% of desires compared to some, someone else who may have 20% desires. So it'd be easier for you than the person with 20% desires, you see? So it depends on where you are. 
what state you're in at the moment. Let me finish this. Uh, this question. Yeah, go ahead. Cyril has a question. So when the intellect brings the mind back to that focus, is it because we talked about the gross intellect and the subtle intellect, mm -hmm. is it the gross intellect that is bringing the mind, sorry, the, the, the focus back? Or is it the subtle intellect? So she's asking, is it the gross intellect or subtle intellect? It is the gross intellect. The subtle intellect allows you to think of the word, um, concept. You can think of God, but you're actually still fun functioning in the world. Yeah? So you need a powerful intellect. Once you have a powerful intellect, then you're able to keep the mind in control. Even, for example, forget about spirituality. Even if you want to read a book or you want to concentrate on an exam, you can't have the mind wandering everywhere. You can't concentrate. The intellect has to keep the mind focused. I've got one and a half hours. I need to do 50 questions. Stop thinking of what we did yesterday. Yeah? So the intellect has to be powerful enough to say, right, I've got to finish this task you've got a project to do you've got an hour to do it there's a meeting the md is waiting for your project so you can conduct the meeting you can't dilly dally you need to be able to concentrate and what is concentration keeping the mind focused on the job at hand and that's the role of the intellect yeah okay any questions before we move on? Is that okay, Jashnavin? When would so when would be uh, appropriate time to meditate? Is it then the same time in the morning, like between four and six, we study, and then that's when the intellect is clear, and that's the time to meditate as well. The mind would be less agitated at that more at time of the morning. Okay. Yeah. That's why, you know, when we say study in the morning, get everything ready, keep your table ready, book ready, everything. You don't want the mind to start thinking, where's my book? Where's this? Where's that? You keep everything ready for the morning. Yeah. So it's automatic. You do whatever you need to do and sit down and study. And you're not thinking of anything else. So that would be the best time to meditate. You can try it. Try it for a few minutes. See how stable or unstable the mind is. I mean, it'd be different for everybody. Megna. Meditation is the art of maintaining, maintaining the mind, the mind, the mind, to the exclusion of all other thought. In the process of meditation, the chant is gradually brought to to mental whisper to finally end in silence. The intellect remains aware of the entire proceeding until the moment of silence is reached. The silence is cessation of thought flow, which indicates extinction of the mind. The intellect, which has been observing the chant, also ceases as there is nothing for it to observe. What remains is pure silence, pure awareness, 
pure consciousness, the absolute reality, Brahman. The first line that's line that just came up. Who's, someone got their microphones on? We can just turn it off, please. Um, meditation is the process of keeping the mind focused on one thought with the exclusion of all other thoughts. This defines meditation. I think, Kevin, you said it in the beginning. Process of keeping a mind focused on one thought, whatever that thought is, with the exclusion of all other thoughts. When one meditates, one brings the chant to a whisper and then to silence. So you'd be saying, oh, 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 oh. Reduce your voice until it becomes a whisper and slowly it disappears no om no thought of om the mind is blank no thought flow the intellect that was observing the process has nothing to observe anymore so the intellect is not there either now what remains is silence. That is pure consciousness. That is with you with the self. That's the process of meditation. That's the role of the mind, the role of the intellect. Remember we said a human is made up of spirit, self, enveloped by the intellect, the mind and the body. And through the process of meditation you have eliminated body, the mind, intellect. What you have left is a spirit, pure consciousness within all of us. Dhamish, you had a question. So are we in a deep sleep state then? Are we, sorry? Are we in a deep sleep state? When, when, when we have no flow, no mind. You can say it's similar to deep sleep, but it's you're, you've actually created that state. When you go to sleep in the night, it's a normal process. Yeah, But this, you've actually put in effort to create that state where you're one with the self, which is similar to deep sleep. But this is a conscious effort for you to develop and to reach that goal. Deep sleep, everyone goes through. Unspiritual or spiritual, everyone goes for deep sleep. Human beings designed that way. Yeah. When they wake up, they don't know any different. They don't know they are one with consciousness. Oh, I had a good sleep tonight. That's it. Back to normality. <laughs> yeah, but yes, you're right. It's a similar state. Is that okay? Yes, because every time I try this, I end up in deep sleep. You fall asleep? Yeah. Good. I'm making sure. That's, what does that mean? What does that mean? He falls asleep. He's calm. He's calm. He's very relaxed. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to share something. One minute, um, please. Let's just finish Dhamesh's question. Okay. So... 
you see, Dharmesh, um, your intellect's not powerful enough. The mind's fallen to sleep. You with me? That's why morning is better because you're wide awake and you can actually uh, monitor, you can actually know what you're doing, you're focusing. It's a task that you're actually performing actively because you, you, you want to do that and you're, and you're, you're more clear-headed. But you're doing it in the evening, then naturally you're going to fall asleep because you've been tired throughout the day. Yeah. Is that okay? Okay. Let's just stay with this for now, Shilabin, uh, with this. I want to keep the focus going on this, then we'll do it at the end. Any questions on this? Good question, uh, Dharmesh. Kel. So just a follow-on on Dharmesh's question is, we know, like, for example, that when you go in deep sleep, you, you, you're somewhat in that state. So even when you're under anesthesia or in a coma. So because when you, are, when you have anesthesia or something like that, um, it's not a conscious effort, right? So because what I'm trying to get at is what, if we know there's a shortcut where I can just get anesthesia all the time and I'm going to be there, why not just do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Good idea, good thought. Somehow, I don't think it was designed for that. Because <laughs> the anesthetic, the difference is that anesthesia will always wear out and you'll always be back. <laughs> you see? And the thing is, you can't say, well, okay, I'll just commit suicide because you'll be born again. You haven't eliminated your vastness. Isn't it? You'll be back to square one. Yeah, so it's still, so in that, it's a temporary state in, in, in those instances. So it's it's it's, it's an induced state. Yeah. It's an induced state that you haven't um, actively wanted to do that. It's induced by external sources for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. Your vastness desires are still there. Is that okay? Yeah. Shashi, you had a question. Uh, maybe just a clarification. So when you're um, in deep meditation, um, going back to what Dharmesh said, if you fall asleep during it, then does that mean that you're not still in a meditative format? Because um, sometimes if you're listening to like guided meditation, you can become relaxed and so engrossed in it and you can fall asleep. And also what you were saying about early morning meditation that um, you don't fall asleep because you're wide awake. But I've experienced times when I have woken up and I'm wide awake. I could be up at three or four in the morning. I'm listening to some guided meditation and I can fall asleep again during that. But I've always been told that even if you fall asleep, your subconscious mind is still taking that in. Yeah. The thing is, um, what we're saying, there are many different states the mind can go in yeah and when you're actively meditating for this particular reason you'll be in control of that meditation See? what you're saying is i fell asleep my subconscious is there but you've actually fallen asleep whatever is happening in the mind you're not actively trying to meditate to reach that state of silence you've just become so relaxed 
that you've naturally fallen asleep. You see, see the difference? There's a subtle difference, but there's a difference. Mm -hmm. You're not in control of that. The mind is so relaxed, you've just dozed off. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, has another question? Would you say then that there are two types of meditation? One is, for my understanding of what we've just covered, one is to realize or seek the self and that process only. And the other one could be for, I suppose, relaxation or thinking of something higher or but not actually reaching that state, I don't know. Um, she's asking, there are two types of meditation. We're only covering one type of meditation, which is what meditation was invented for. Mm. Yeah. Any other uh, versions of meditation, we're not looking at that. And there may be a hundred different versions. So I think we're only going to, we're going to keep it pure. What is the reason for meditation? Why was it invented? How do you practice it to gain that state of desirelessness? That's all we're going to cover. Is that okay? Right. Um, Ravi. Meditation is a scientific technique to exhaust your thoughts and expose the supreme self within. The intellect plays an all-important role in it, maintaining its control on the mind during the entire procedure. Meditation, therefore, is not a mere mechanical repetition of a mantra. The human mind has a tendency to be drawn to a particular object or being, tangible or intangible, even towards a deity, and its thoughts start to flow in that direction. If the intellect does not exercise its control over the mind, the thought flow continues. The mind has its way. It can cherish the thought of the object continuously for a period of time. As young lovers do, this is mere emotional indulgence, mental infatuation. When the mind runs in the direction of its desired object without the awareness of the intellect, whereas meditation requires a disciplined effort by the practitioner, the intellect needs to be alert to keep the mind's focus on the chant, prevent it from slipping into any other thought. Such programmed, disciplined concentration on the chosen mantra is meditation. You're actively doing it, you're exercising. This is what I need to do, I need to meditate. This is what meditation is. And you're sitting down with the purpose of doing it. If the intellect is not employed to keep the mind focused, you cannot meditate. Because the mind has a tendency to emotionally indulge in thoughts. Especially where you have a strong like, a strong desire, the mind will go there. Even if it's, even if it's a murti or something, your mind can actually focus on the murti and then get lost in that. Intellect has no role in it. Here's an example, young lovers, you meet you, your first boyfriend, girlfriend, 
go for a walk in the park. Afterwards, you relish that experience. You can't get that idea out of your mind, that experience you spent. You go back home to your separate home, but the mind keeps indulging in that experience. That's mental indulgence. You may be thinking of one single thought, but it's mental indulgence. No intellect's playing the role. There's no thought, no intellect controlling that thought. The mind is free to do what it likes, even though it's only one thought. Wonder what he's doing. Wonder what he's eating. We had such a nice walk in the park. Mind is just indulging. Emotional indulgence. Even though it's a single thought flow. So unless the intellect is deployed in concentrating mind on that thought flow of that mantra, it's not meditation. So, you know, sometimes you sit in front of the murti and you're praying, and the mind can go into all directions in that thought of that prayer, in the thought of that murti. You can get engrossed in that thought. So meditation is a discipline. It requires effort for the intellect to keep the mind on that thought. It's a scientific process of exhausting your thoughts and to expose the self within. This is what meditation is. Is that okay? Any questions? Joshna Bin, does that make sense? Yeah. The mind can think of one thing. Unless the intellect is not deployed, it's just emotional indulgence. Next paragraph. Uncontrolled, indisciplined thought flow is mental indulgence. Whereas controlled, disciplined thought flow is concentration, is meditation. Both are flow of thoughts, but of opposite nature. They produce conflicting results. Mental indulgence increases your desires, while meditation raises your desires. They act like diarrhea and purgative, seemingly the same, but with a distinct difference. Diarrhea is a disease, while purgative is a remedy. Likewise, thoughts running after the world unchecked by a discerning intellect increases your desires, creates mental instability, whereas disciplined thought flow governed by the intellect decreases your desires. Finally, the practice of meditation annihilates your last desire and regains your supreme self. So, as you said, undisciplined thoughts are mental indulgence. When the thoughts are controlled by the intellect, this is meditation. Mental indulgence increases your desires. You relish that moment you have spent in the park. You can't wait to meet your partner again. You can't think of anything else. Increases desires. When it's controlled by the intellect, it reduces your desires. You give an example, diarrhea and purgative. Purgative is like laxative. Both causes the same effect. One, one is controlled because 
you're taking a um, laxative because you have an illness. The other is just normal if you have a disease. The effect is the same. One is a disease, the other is a remedy. The practice of meditation eliminates the last thought and you attain the Supreme Self. Is that okay, Ramesh? Make sense? So what you're saying is, really, meditation should be your last form. If, if you try and do it early, all you're doing is increasing your desires because you're not doing it correctly. Absolutely. It should be the last thing you do in your spiritual path. That's why, actually, in the ashram, for three years, we don't meditate. I mean, we spend a few minutes, you know, just to get an idea of what it is. But we, the meditation isn't part of the course, part of the course even though it's a course on spiritual development. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Damesh. It's the last process of your spiritual journey. Ravi. You cannot, you cannot practice single-pointed meditation until you have risen well above attachment and desire. When your mind becomes free from worldly attraction and entanglement, remains under the control of the intellect, and you are objective in your transactions of life, the progress and success in meditation is therefore directly proportional to the preparation of the mind. Your mind must be cleansed before you reach the seat of meditation. The purer the mind, the easier it is to practice meditation. Purity of mind means rendering it free of desire and expectation, means renunciation, nothing less. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be God, assures Christ. You must first gain the purity of mind, but people directly, directly try to meditate without the initial preparation. Without purifying their mind, they will not give up their attachment and desire, their hope and expectation, yearning and craving. They will not pay the price for what they seek. Those extroverted people living in the material and sensual life, wish to become the Buddha overnight? Good question, Dhanesh. You need a pure mind, free of attachments and desires. As Bharti Ben said, of unload, empty, empty the mind. When you've done that, it's easier to meditate. Puring, purifying the mind is renunciation. We discussed that in the last chapter. You cannot meditate until one is free from these desires, affairs of the world. You can't meditate until the mind is purified. Christ's words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which explains exactly what we're talking about. Pure at heart, pure of mind. When your mind is pure, you become one with the self. You see God. That's what Christ said. You can't become Buddha overnight. 
Buddha meditated and reached that state of self-realization. He offloaded or he left his kingdom, his palace, emptied his mind. Just because we sit like that, like Buddha, close our eyes and we try to meditate, we cannot reach that state unless mind is purified, like Buddha's. You're only seeing the body, you're not seeing what's inside. That's the key, purifying the mind. Last paragraph. Meditation is the highest spiritual practice. It requires premeditative preparation. Your mind must be rendered equanimous to be able to meditate effectively. To plunge into meditation directly without preparation is fertile, even detrimental. The time spent in meditation is a small part of the day. The rest of the day you are preoccupied with worldly activity. Your activity during the day tells upon your practice of meditation. Egocentric, selfish activity agitates your mind. An agitated mind cannot meditate, whereas selfless, sacrificial activity makes your mind calm and composed, renders it conductive for meditation. The human mind is unaccelerated by self-centered activity. Meditation cannot help heal the ulcerated mind if the activity during the day continues to be selfish. Just as a wound treated by a surgeon can never heal if you keep scratching and irritating it for the rest of the day. This is the sad plight of those who claim to practice meditation, who sincerely try to meditate every day, while all day they indulge in desire-ridden, selfish activity that ruins their effort in meditation. Continuing this way, their mind develops frustration, bitterness. They turn into ugly caricatures in life. They can't have all these selfish desires, ecocentric desires, activities during the day and then practice meditation. This does not work because the mind stays agitated. All day you're extroverted and then you want to become introverted straight away. You can't, it doesn't work. The mind cannot behave in that way. So during the day, you, whatever you're doing, have an attitude of unselfishness, selflessness. Whatever you're doing in the mind, this helps the mind to become purer, less agitated, less calm. You don't have to give anything, you don't have to do anything. Just the attitude. People these days meditate regularly with an unprepared mind. This is futile. They will eventually become frustrated, meaning they won't get the proper results that comes from meditation. In fact, some people who've meditated with an unprepared mind have done permanent damage. So this is the problem.
as Sil said, there's many different types of meditation. You know, helps you just to stay calm, uh, helps you reduce agitations. You know, we're not talking about those things. People who do serious meditation with an unprepared mind. You're sitting for 20 minutes, calming the mind, listening to music, or it, it, that's different. Yeah, you're just getting away from a hectic day. That's very different. Any questions on meditation? Any questions on meditation, what we've covered today? Does everyone, does everyone understand what meditation is now? Mind on one thought with the intellect observing to make sure that the mind stays on track with that one thought until that thought is eliminated. The mind is gone, the intellect is no longer reached that state. So, any questions on that? Everyone's clear? So next week, we're going to talk about the principle of meditation and what the symbol OM means. You'll be very surprised. It's a whole five or six paragraphs on what the mantra OM signifies. Why do we say OM? It's very interesting. So we'll cover that next week. Right, anybody else? Anything else? Shilabin, you had something to say? Yes, it was related to Dharmesh, uh, Dharmesh's question again. Yeah. Uh, when we focus on a mantra or, or one, one single focusness, and he says you fall off to sleep. Uh, like this week, as you know, when you get, uh, I woke up every night, and this is in between, like it, it could be 2.30, 3 o'clock. And then you think that, you know, you're, uh, and also Shashi said, you're wide awake. So you just focus on this one mantra and I was focusing just on this one mantra. And just the repetition of the mantra, it calmed the mind so much that within, I think, two, three minutes, I was back into deep sleep till you get up again in the morning. And it's, it's, for me, it, you know, we choose a lot of different mantras and everything else, but just focusing on this one thing had, um, it, it worked like magic. It was that good. This is exactly what we've said today in class. You know, when your mind is on one thought, you're stopping it, the intellect is stopping it from going, thinking of other things. Yeah? Yeah. You're drawing it in. You say, okay. Mind has a tendency to think of everything and anything. It can go anywhere, anytime. You're basically exercising control over it. This is what you're doing by keeping it on that one thought. This is the whole idea of meditation by doing that. She, but she uses to go fall back to sleep, which is great. So, so where you, we're, we're talking about use, practicing it for that last state the state of self-realization. Yeah. But the idea is the same. All right, Shashi? Make sense? You okay with that? Okay, well, no doubts? 
Think about it. You can ask a question next week. Think about it. And whoever's got that book, please read that paragraph on that uh, parallel with the film projector and the mind. The more you think about it, the more it will make sense. Yeah, I haven't done it justice. We can spend a whole chapter, a whole class just on that one paragraph. But uh, rather you think about it yourself, you know, it will give you an insight of how your mind functions. Yeah, great. If there's no more questions, we'll see everyone next week.